you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Today we'll be reading out of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a pew Bible in front of you, and you can follow along on page 554. Once again, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? But do not consider the plank in your own eye. Or can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at the plank and look a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Lord, we come to you right now. We want to praise you. Lift your name on high and always remember that you are the very reason we live and breathe. I pray you uh, uh, give Bruce the words to speak, to be able to connect with us, God, and that we'd be able to uh, move forward and grow further. In your name, amen. Well, this morning we are concluding our fall worship series that we've been in for the last five weeks. And uh, I, I trust and pray that this series has been an encouragement to you, a series that we have been calling uh, How to Ruin Relationships and How to Restore Them God's Way. And as you, if you've been here, you know we've been looking at different issues, different topics that can threaten to ruin our relationships in life. And then looking at God's word and what God has to say about how to deal with those issues and how to restore those relationships. And, uh, and so I hope this has been encouragement, been a help, uh, and yes, even a, a challenge to us and even convicting us in areas of our life where we have, man, that's, that's, that's kind of me. And that's an area that's threatening a relationship and to ruin that relationship in my life. And and hopefully through this series, God has, has humbled us, humbled yourself to repent of that issue and that sin and to uh, begin the restoration process with God first and foremost and then with those that you're in relationship with. And, and so this morning what we want to do is we want to conclude the series. And we're going to conclude it with a subject that is kind of a, a hot button issue, if you will, in our political correct society. We're going to talk about the issue of judging others. And, uh, and so how many are familiar with the TV show? Uh, perhaps you've even seen the TV show, Judge Judy. Raise your hand. Almost everybody is familiar with that. Judge Judy has become an American icon. Her full name is actually Judith Schindlin. And after she retired as a family court judge in Manhattan in 1996, she started her second career as television's abrasive, no-nonsense Judge Judy. On the show, the state of New York's flag is behind her bench, but the show is actually filmed in Hollywood. Her courtroom isn't really a court of law, but it's a binding arbitration process in which both parties have signed an agreement that they will abide by her decision. The gallery is made up of actors who are told to discuss the case among themselves, the plaintiffs, though, are real people who have submitted their claims to the show's producers and 
So if you have a disagreement, you submit your claim, and if you're chosen, your airfare and your lodging will be covered by the show, and you will receive $100 in stipend. Wow. Judge Judy, on the other hand, is paid, get this, $25 million a year for the show. She lives in Connecticut and commutes each week to Hollywood in her private jet. There's a lot of money in judging others, isn't there? Judge Judy's tagline is justice with an attitude. And she's known for her Judaisms, such as beauty fades, but dumb is forever. Think about that one. But there's only one Judge Judy, is there? Now, there's some knockoffs. There's some other shows like that. But many of us, we, we tend to play the role. We even like to play the role of Judge Judy by criticizing and judging others. And that's why people often respond to us, hey, who made you judge? So here's where we're going, going in today's message. Here's what we're going to see uh, is to ruin relationships, just be judgmental of people. Just be judgmental. But to restore relationships, we need to be merciful toward people. Years ago, the, the best known verse in all the Bible was John 3.16. In fact, I'm sure many of you could even quote that verse now. But today, the best known verse might be what Jesus said here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. In fact, when I typed in the phrase, the Bible says not to, on a Google search, here's what Google auto-suggested for me. The Bible says not to eat pork. The Bible says not to eat shellfish. And then number three, the Bible says not to judge. Today, judge not. Man, that is music to our modern ears, isn't it? And yet, no verse is more misunderstood than this verse. In fact, you could easily argue that Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 here, is by far the most misapplied verse in all the Bible, used and abused by both Christians and non-Christians alike. Who are you to judge? I mean, that has become quickly the motto of our culture today. Who are you to judge me? We live at a time... We live in a place where tolerance is considered to be one of the highest virtues of the land. After all, you have your beliefs, you have your preferences, and I have mine. So who are you to judge me? From our culture's perspective, Jesus' words here seem pretty good. Judge not, lest you be judged. So today, judging others is, is seen as kind of the ultimate sin in our postmodern world. But I would suggest that those who quote this particular verse the most are the ones who misunderstand it the most. Those who misapply this verse often use it as kind of a, a shield for sin or a barrier to keep others at bay, allowing them to justify living as they please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability. Their objections often sound familiar. I'm sure you've heard of some of them. Aren't we all sinners after all? What gives you the right to make judgments about someone else? Isn't that God's job? job? Didn't Jesus say, judge not? So when Jesus tells us here, judge not that you be not judged, is this, is this what he had in mind? Well, the short answer is no. And in a few minutes, I'll show you why. 
It's no. So what did Jesus mean then? And how, how does all this impact our relationships with one another here in the church, our, our relationships with people in our family, our relationships with people we're, with who we work with? How does this saying of Jesus, what he says here in this great Sermon on the Mount, is where these verses come from, how does this affect and impact our relationships in life? Now, you may want to take notes. They're in your bulletin there, so the person beside you doesn't judge you and think you're not serious about this. That is a little humorous, it's supposed to be. So let's look at this. Jesus on judging. Jesus on judging here. Number one, it's the command. The command. And the command is don't judge with superiority. Don't judge with superiority. Now, what is Jesus addressing here? Well, the word judge uh, means to separate, it means to choose, to make a distinction. Uh, even to, uh, you know, pick between two things. As we will see, the word judge does not always have a negative meaning or connotation as we tend to think it does. There is some judgment that is good, helpful, and even commanded. Now, if that's the case, what did Jesus mean then when he says here in verse 1, judge not. Well, let me first of all say what it doesn't mean. Number one, first, Jesus did not mean that we should avoid making judgments. He does not mean that we should avoid making judgments in life. Every day we make hundreds of judgments about things and even about people that are not necessarily wrong or sinful. There's nothing wrong with saying that a certain movie is a waste of time. There's nothing wrong with saying that certain apples taste bad or that it's right to do one thing and wrong to do another. It's not wrong to sit on a jury and render a guilty verdict about someone's crime. Jesus is not saying that it's a sin to form an opinion about someone based on their behavior or that you can never tell somebody, hey, do you realize what you're doing is wrong? Jesus' command to... Judge not. It, it's not a retreat from absolute truth. It's not a retreat from the courage to call someone out for what they are doing with their life or in their life. Some people think that this verse commands no judging at all. That this verse prohibits any discernment of a person's life or identifying that certain actions are wrong. In this case, people use this verse They'll quote it, misapply it though, to claim that identifying someone's actions as sinful and calling them to account for it is judging. And didn't Jesus say, judge not? But Jesus' command here can't mean that we never make any judgments in any sense at any time. And here's why. Now we're not going to take the time to show you in all of God's Word, I just want to show you why from the very same chapter in which Jesus makes this command. Notice this in your Bibles. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet, I would encourage you to. Just a few verses after his statement on judging here in Matthew 7, verse 1, you go a few verses down and Jesus says in verse 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before the swine. 
Now, obviously, we cannot follow Jesus' command here unless we judge, unless we discern who are dogs and who are pigs. Now, we don't have time to get into what this means, what Jesus means by this, but this takes discernment. This takes judgment on our part. Just a few verses later, Jesus makes this statement in verses 13 and 14 of the same chapter. He says, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And many are going this way, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, this doesn't sound like, to me, hey, whatever way you want to get there, that is to heaven, is fine. Who am I to judge? Doesn't sound like that from Jesus' perspective here. And then Jesus warns us in the immediate verses after that, in verses 15 through 16, he says, hey, beware of who? False prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And then he says, Notice it in verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. This too requires judgment on our part. Jesus says you can actually watch a person's lifestyle, that is their fruits, and discern what kind of person they are. So in all of these cases, just right here in the immediate context of Matthew chapter 7, judgments are being made about various individuals and their way of life. And so despite what many people believe in our culture today, Jesus can't mean that we never make judgments about people or that making judgments is somehow wrong in and of itself. In fact, I would say that based on these verses here, as Christ followers... We have an obligation to exercise judgment about people, right and wrong, sin, truth, and the list goes on. So Jesus, please understand this, he is not advocating a moral free-for-all in our society where no behavior is ever judged whatsoever, and we all just live together in blissful, peaceful tolerance and acceptance. That is not what Jesus is talking about here with this verse. So if Jesus is not telling us to abandon moral discernment and judgment, then what in the world is he saying? What is he talking about? Well, notice this. Jesus did mean we should avoid being judgmental. We should avoid being judgmental. The kind of judgment we are to avoid is hypocritical, condemning judgment. There is a world of difference between being discerning and being hypocritical and condemning a hypocritical, judgmental spirit is destructive. It's a person who judges others harshly or quickly or unfairly or even severely with a desire to condemn them and hurt them and tear them down. A judgmental person revels in criticism and expects to find fault in others. It's like the man who sat watching his pastor neighbor nail up a trellis in his backyard. And the pastor, seeing him watching intently from his yard, asked, hey, trying to pick up some pointers on carpentry? To which his neighbor replied, nope, just waiting to see what a pastor says when he hits his thumb. (laughs) 
Listen, when a, when a critic discovers faults in another person, he feels this malignant satisfaction and always sees the worst possible motives in the person's actions. We find a great example of this when Jesus told a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector over in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. Listen to the story. I want to read it for you. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, it's, it's quite easy to see how the Pharisee expressed his gratitude to God while expressing contempt for the tax collector. Where does this come from? Well, such sinful judgment comes from an attitude of superiority and pride. It comes from a proud heart that demonstrates itself in a critical, condemning spirit. But we don't have the right to play God by passing final judgment on other people, as if we know God's final verdict on their lives. Listen, final judgment belongs to the Lord and not us. This kind of judgmentalism sees the faults of others more easily and clearly than our own. But we need to remember what the Proverbs says in 21.2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And we cannot judge the heart. All of this means we are not to judge the motives of other people. Try as we might, we only see the outside. God alone sees the heart. We can judge what people do, but we cannot judge why they do it. We can judge what people say, but we cannot judge why they say it. Only God can judge the hidden secrets of the heart. So leave that judgment to Him. Think about it. You don't even know your own heart much less the heart of anyone else. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, I think we could summarize what Jesus is saying here on judging in this manner. We could state it in one simple sentence. And that is, you judge someone not when you discern their position. You judge someone not when you discern their position, but when you dismiss them as a person, you are judging them. In other words, Jesus, get this, he does not forbid the valuation of others. He forbids the condemnation of others. And here's how we tend to dismiss people. By the way, I'll be the first to raise my hand. We are all guilty of this. We dismiss people more than we think we do, which is a form of judgment here that Jesus is commanding us not to participate in. And here's how we tend to do this. Here's how this tends to happen. First of all, we label people. We do this all the time, don't we? Someone does something that annoys us, and we slap a name on them. 
We reduce a human being made in the image of God to the tiny confines of a derogatory comment. And then after we label people, we limit people. There's a connection between labeling and limiting. Labels are short, easy to remember, but they leave no room for one's faults and mistakes and even their sins. They don't tell enough of the story. They tell just enough of the story to justify our judgment of the person, just enough to make our opponent look bad and ourselves look righteous, kind of like the Pharisee here with the tax collector. And in the process, what we are doing is limiting a person whom God loves and for whom Christ died to a tiny box out of which there is no escape for them. So we limit people, we label people, and third, we liquidate people. In a sense, when we label and limit them, it's a short step to just writing them off. Now, of course, we don't technically liquidate people. That is, we don't kill them. But when we judge others oblivious to our own faults, we put them in a category that is separate from the one that we see ourselves in. Sure, we make mistakes. We have some faults. But hey, God's still working on me, right? But those we judge, man, they're condemned already. And that's how we liquidate them. This is how we dismiss people in a judgmental attitude. Jesus, understand, is not commanding us to suspend our discerning judgments, but rather he's commanding us to avoid a condemning judgment, being judgmental, and here's why. He gives us a reason why. Notice, number two, it's because you and I will be judged likewise. Jesus has given us a very pragmatic reason not to judge. If you don't like being judged yourself, then stop judging other people, basically. Have you noticed that we want a lot more leniency, a lot more mercy, a lot more understanding than, we, than what we are willing to give to others? We want people to understand what we meant to say, what we meant to do. We want people to, to bear with us with long-suffering when we're struggling. We want people to show us mercy when we make mistakes or even sin. But let's be honest, so often our judgments are a lot harsher and a lot quicker when it comes to others. And for this reason, Jesus comes to us now in this Sermon on the Mount, and he says, listen, judge not that you be not judged. Verse 2, here's why. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. What does this mean? Well, I think we could summarize it in this way. The judgment one uses is like a boomerang. It's like a righteous boomerang. And will come back on the one who judges. In other words, Jesus says, God will use, God will judge us with the same type of judgment we use to judge others. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, the same sermon, by the way. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So if you are merciful in your dealings with other people's faults and failures, you will receive mercy when the Lord deals with your life. So our judging is like a, a righteous boomerang. It's, it's kind of like a taste of our own medicine, if you will. As someone once said, 
those who witch, witch hunt end up riding brooms. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, you therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, Paul says you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And what Paul is basically telling us here is that in passing judgment on another person, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things you are judging. So if we hope to receive mercy from God, then we better show mercy to others. So why? Why, though, would God use our own judgment as a means of judgment on us. Well, we could talk about this for a while. We don't have time, but let me throw out one idea as to why. It's because God's aim is to expose the utter foolishness and unfairness of our hypocritical judgment of other people. Jesus wants us to think twice about what we think, what we say, and what we conclude about people. He wants us to realize that judgment is coming to all of us, and that we would be foolish to think that God doesn't take note of our self-righteous and merciless standards. In other words, if you want to play God in this lifetime, just be aware, because one day the real God may make you play by your own rules. And good luck to that. So, if we should avoid judging other people with an attitude of superiority, the attitude like this Pharisee had in contempt with this tax collector, if that's what we are to avoid, and that's what Jesus is talking about, then what should we do? Well, Jesus gives us a principle on what we should do, how we should live, and that is we should judge ourselves first. Judge yourself first. To make his point, Jesus uses one of his best illustrations in all the Bible. An illustration that we are so familiar with. Even the world, even unbelievers are familiar with this illustration. And one that Jesus' listeners in that day would have found very, very funny. What is the illustration in verse 3? Look at it. He simply poses it in a question. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That's the illustration in the form of a question. The picture that Jesus gives us here is as ludicrous as possible. It's intended to be that. It's Bible times humor at its best. The log here refers to a huge piece of wood. Almost like a rafter that's coming out of one's eye. And of course, a speck is a small piece of sawdust. Now with such a monstrous log in one's eye, his vision would not simply be impaired. Listen, he would be absolutely blinded. So picture a person walking around with a log sticking out of his eye who considers himself such a moral expert that he can see a speck in your eye. And he's coming, not at your invitation, but at his own invitation to help you get that speck out of your eye. Such a picture is comical indeed, is it not? But morally, it's not funny at all. And yet the situation Jesus is portraying is far too common 
among brothers and sisters in Christ, among brothers and sisters within a family home, among family members, among co-workers. So here's the explanation of Jesus' illustration for our own application today in the 21st century. Three explanational points or applications here. First of all, number one, Jesus is attacking our hypocrisy of fault-finding. He's attacking our hypocrisy of fault-finding. When Jesus talks about the speck in your brother's eye and the log in your own eye, man, what's he getting at? I would suggest to you he's getting at our blatant hypocrisy in life. In other words, we shouldn't berate people for the very things we are guilty of. It's like the guy who lectures his small group for not giving when he's cheating on his taxes. It's hypocritical for someone with a log in his eye to pass judgment on someone with a speck in his eye. And I think it's ironic, I find it ironic at least, that Jesus speaks of other people's faults in terms of specks. But he speaks of our faults, our sins, in terms of a log. Whoa, vast difference, is there not? You see, Jesus knows. He, he knows us inside and out. Jesus knows that, that our tendency is exaggeration. He knows that we inflate the faults of others while at the same time underestimating our own faults. You see, we think our faults are just little mistakes, but other people's faults are horrible and sinful. Jesus also knows that we tend to get upset over small issues, the specks in another person's life, and yet so easily we overlook the big issues, the log in our own lives. Perhaps this is why we find it so easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin while we look at our sin through the wrong end of a telescope. So Jesus, what he's doing here with this illustration, he, he's attacking our hypocrisy. And he's attacking our hypocrisy specifically of fault-finding when he asks this heart-penetrating question in verse 4. Look at it. How can you say to your brother, Oh, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You see, fault-finding is out of order here. Listen, fault-finding has no place in our relationships at home, among siblings, among spouses. It has no place within the church family at large. It has no place among co-workers, among neighbors. One source defines a fault finder as one who finds much to criticize or complain about, especially of a petty nature. One author states, fault finding is the venom of the soul. It destroys our joy, drains our happiness, and prevents us from having close friendships. No one likes a fault finder because no one likes being around a nitpicking critic. How true. And so this sin of fault-finding comes partly from spiritual pride and partly from disguised envy. Fault-finders, listen, they don't really care about the speck in somebody else's eye. 
All they really care about is building up themselves in their own eyes. Fault finding is a deadly disease because if not kept in check, it turns us into self-righteous judges who expect the worst from others, which produces a, a false benevolence, a false mercy towards others. Hey, I see you have a speck in your eye. Let me help you with that. And that's not really what they're after at all. It's not what they care about. And so Jesus, he wants us to see. In fact, it's almost as a warning to us. He wants us to see that log-toting, speck inspectors, are hypocrites. In fact, the very act of fault-finding is worse than the fault we think we see in the other person. So, before we do eye surgery on someone else, Jesus says first we need to do heart surgery on ourselves. Which brings us to the second explanation here for our application. And that is Jesus insists on integrity in our lives first. He insists on integrity. Yes, Jesus is telling us not to be blatant hypocrites. But Jesus is also getting at something more here. I think Jesus is confronting us for failing to grapple with our own sinfulness when he says in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Again, it's interesting here. Did you notice that Jesus assumes the log is in our eye? It's not if. It's not if there is a log in your eye which obstructs our vision. No, Jesus assumes there is a log in our eye. So no wonder Jesus tells us to first take out the log of your own eye before you go about helping someone get the speck out of their eye. After all, how can we even see to help someone when we still have a log in our eye? We're blinded by that log. So the order here in which we do things is very crucial. We are to judge ourselves first. True, Christian love is not blind. God never says ignore the faults of others. God never says, let somebody, another brother or sister in Christ, just continue in their sin and turn a blind eye to that. He never says that. But he does say, take care of your own faults first. In other words, Jesus is admonishing us here and kind of saying, man, get up in the morning and stand in the bathroom and look in the mirror. Except... In addition to the mirror on your bathroom wall, open up the Word of God and look in the mirror of God's Word. And ask God to show you your own sins first. David's words in Psalm 139, 23 and 24 come to mind, where David cries out, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. If we would pray that and mean it, we would do a lot more confessing and a lot less condemning. The third explanation for our application is Jesus commends mercy toward one another. Did you notice what Jesus called the judgmental person in the very beginning of verse 5? What did he call that person in the beginning of verse 5? Say it out loud. Hypocrite. 
What a terrible thing to be called. I haven't met a person yet who, who enjoys being called a hypocrite. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we hate the idea of being called a hypocrite. In fact, we hate it more that other people are hypocrites. We have an aversion in our culture to somebody who's hypocritical. Get away from me. I don't even want to be around you. And yet, Jesus uses this word, and that's what he calls us. When we judge and condemn others without first judging ourselves. But once we have allowed, get this, once we have allowed the Holy Spirit to do his painful surgery on us first, once we have confessed our sins and repented over our sins, then and only then are we ready to do eye surgery on someone else. Or as Jesus says in the last part of verse 5, and then you will see clearly to do what? To take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now understand, please understand this. The alternative to judging is not tolerance of somebody's sin. The alternative to judging is not even indifference to sin. The alternative here that Jesus is getting at is mercy towards a brother or sister in Christ. Mercy towards them. It's not ignoring another person's faults. It's showing them that Jesus has forgiven all our faults because of his death on the cross and his resurrection. Hallelujah! Mercy means we don't see anyone beyond the bounds of God's grace or even beyond the bounds of our forgiveness to them. You see, to simply gaze on the sins of others and to do nothing but to gaze, it turns us into judgmental Pharisees who are quick to condemn. But once we are cleansed and humbled by the Lord, then we are ready to gently remove the speck from a brother or sister's eye. And he or she will be glad for us to do it. Why? Because they know we are not there to condemn them. We are there to help them. Have you not had something in your eye? Have you not had a speck in your eye? Yes, and what, what do you want to do with a speck in your eye? Just leave it there? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. No, you're not. Man, we have a speck in our eye, and we're up to the mirror. Got to get this out, you know, pour some water. We go to our spouse or our mom or whatever. Help me, I got a speck. You know, you know if you got dust in my eye or something, you've got to get it out. And so the idea here is that we just go along life letting people endure specks in their eye. No, no, no. But if you've ever had someone help you remove something from your eye, then you understand the amount of gentleness that's required, though. The eye is very sensitive, isn't it? And so the procedure for removing a speck from an eye is very difficult. It's very delicate and requires the utmost gentleness. And understand, we're not dealing with the physical eye. This is an illustration. We are dealing with somebody's soul. 
And for this reason, Galatians chapter 6, 1, Paul comes to us and he reminds us, listen to what he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, in other words, if anyone is struggling with sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So when I am talking to someone who's struggling with sin, I should be very aware that I'm infected with the same sinful stuff that they are. And remember Jesus' words here, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And what judgment was pronounced on me? Mercy. And shouldn't that affect how I see and relate to others? Absolutely. So what Jesus is teaching us here And these five verses is that if you want to ruin your relationships, just be judgmental. But if you want to restore your relationships, if you want to see your relationships grow with people, then be merciful toward people. Listen, God wants us to be merciful because He is merciful. In fact, God's mercy is overwhelming, isn't it? God doesn't even give us what we deserve. If God gave us what we deserve, we would receive His judgment. Instead, God offers us His mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the secret here of a heart of mercy is experiencing and even enjoying God's mercy toward you. Listen, if you could earn God's favor... You could easily become judgmental towards those who have not yet earned what you have earned. But that is not the case. For we can never, never, never earn God's mercy and grace, can we? We can never attain to that level. It's freely given. Oh, it costs God plenty. It costs God His Son. Jesus Christ with His death on the cross, but it is freely given to those now who come boldly to God's throne according to Hebrews 4, verse 16, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Will you bow your heads with me? And as we prepare for our response time, I would throw out to you that the The antidote to judging is really to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's to be broken by the gospel and to experience the saving grace of the gospel so that we can extend that grace and mercy to others. And what better way is there to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ than to participate in communion, the Lord's Supper? to remember and reflect on what Christ has done for us on the cross. And and what did Christ do for you? Well, Jesus died on the cross as our sinless substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we may receive forgiveness for our sins and receive the gift of eternal life when we repent of our sin and trust Christ as our Savior and Lord. And so as we participate in communion here, let me encourage you to remember Reflect on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give thanks for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your sins. Use this time to reflect even on the questions that are at the bottom of your notes, those heart considerations. And if need be, confess your sin of being judgmental of others. After the praise team sings the chorus for our response time, the music will continue to play and 
those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, those who have trust Christ as Savior and commit to follow Him as Lord, you are invited to participate in communion. You don't necessarily have to be a member of our church, but you do need to be a baptized believer to participate. And there are four tables throughout the auditorium that you may stand and walk to. And once you get the bread and juice, you may take it back to your seat. And of course, the bread and juice represent the body and blood of Jesus when He died on the cross. And it reminds us of who our Lord is and what He has done for us and is doing for us and yet will do for us when He returns. Lord, we come to you this morning, and I hear your words, and I'm convicted. I see that you speak of me in this teaching from Matthew 7. Who among us hasn't noticed the speck in our brother's or sister's eye, even while we ignore the log in our own eye? Lord, I know I've done this, and I admit to it, and it's so easy to notice the faults in others and to ignore the faults and sins of my own life. And so, Lord, forgive me. Forgive us. Lord, protect us from hypocrisy. Give us the courage to stop excusing the sin in our lives. Lord, give us integrity. Give us the strength to remove the log from our own eyes. And, Lord, help us to be people of mercy. Give us the love to share the transformation, new life, forgiveness, and freedom from sins that you offer. Jesus, you treated people not with condemnation, but with integrity and mercy. And so help us to learn from you. In your name, amen.